1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. For the past several months now, we've enjoyed learning about the special ministry that God commissioned the Apostle Paul to bring to the Gentile people there in Ephesus. And thanks be to God, through Paul's teaching, there were many who came to know Christ. But now here, as we begin this study into the book of First and Second Peter, we see that God does not set aside his ministry to one part of his family while he engages in ministry to another. I say that because there are a lot of Christians who believe that God has abandoned his family, his first family, the Jews. But that's not so. And that's why God gives us these scriptures. And so again, as I said a moment ago, we see that God does not set aside his ministry to one part of his family while he engages in ministry to another, to us Gentiles. He still loves his first family. In the opening words of this epistle, we see that Peter, the Apostle Peter, is God's chosen minister and caretaker. And this, a specific ministry to his first family. And I do like to call them that, the Jews, his first family. And specifically, he is ministering to those who are called elect exiles. Jews who had been scattered into these lands of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, modern-day Turkey, during the dispersion. And from the words here that describe these particular Jews as being from that dispersion, we can know that these particular Jews were not those who were coming out of Jerusalem because of the Romans, but rather these were Jews who had been part of the original exile that took place with the Babylonians and the Assyrians and and they were moved into those areas and to other areas near Babylon several hundred years earlier. Those words again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. May I go back and quickly mention also that too often as we begin to read the opening words of a book in the Bible, we have this tendency to read quickly through the first few words and simply ascribe those first few words as that of being a greeting, much like the greetings that we give when we begin a letter to a friend. But you and I dare not do that with these scriptures, these precious words of God. Yes, some of these books, and these in particular, are given in the form of a letter, and they have familiar formats that are especially in the format of a letter. But we need to quickly understand that every word within the pages of these scriptures, though sometimes appearing to be mundane, are important beyond measure. They are the very breath of God. These words that I just read to you are the very breath of God. Each word specifically given in order to tell us what God is doing, 
who He is and what He wants us to be doing in response to who He is. They're given to bless and to equip us for all the occurrences and the engaging encounters that we meet each day. And so for that reason, we have to be ever so careful to honor each of these words. Listen to the way the Lord describes this in 2 Timothy 3. He says, All Scripture, every word of Scripture, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, as I think back on why did it take better than a year and a half for us to get through the book of Ephesians. It's because every word is so very important. And we dare not just skip through some of them. God put them there for a purpose. And so He has done with these beginning words here in this book of First Peter. And yes, it's in a letter format. And it is clearly given through the heart and the mind of the Apostle Peter. He starts this, these words with, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So these words came through the heart and the mind of the apostle Peter. But we have to go back to what I said a moment ago. We have to know that every word and every thought expressed within these words originated in the heart first, in the heart and the mind of God. They were breathed out from the breath of God into the mind of the apostle Peter as he wrote them. Peter was simply the honored messenger who is blessed to be the one who would receive these words and then present them to us, his readers. What is the next thing that we know? We know that this is Peter, but this is the same Peter that was the beloved disciple and friend of the Lord Jesus. Probably Jesus' closest friend. The one who, along with Jesus, ministered to new converts. The one who, along with James and John, were this select inner circle of leadership within the twelve disciples. The same Peter that loved Jesus so very, very much but found himself deserting Jesus in Jesus' greatest hour of need. But this is also the same Peter who Jesus restored. You'll recall when they met there after Jesus' resurrection there on the beach and Jesus restored him. Tells us here that Peter is an apostle. And that is a very special gift from God. It's the apostleship that he enjoyed was not one that he assigned to himself, but he was assigned as an apostle by Jesus, but also was given that as a special spiritual gift. If you read in the, the list of spiritual gifts, apostleship is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And so Peter was enabled to be an apostle because he was given that gift by the Holy Spirit. And again, the special calling and message that God had equipped Peter to minister was directly to his fellow Jews, not to the Gentiles. Although Peter did minister to some Gentiles. We have a record of where he led Cornelius and his family to Christ. But Peter's first ministry, his primary calling, was to his fellow Jews. Why is that important? Because God has called each one of us to do special errands to bring special messages on his behalf and he might give me a message to one group and give you a message to another group and you won't know that unless you have eyes to see and ears to hear 
And so it's very important that we open our hearts and minds to know what our particular calling and ministry is. And let me assure you, we each have one. If you're not aware that God has called you to a special ministry, then you need to be still before the Lord and ask Him to reveal that to you. Peter's first calling was to his people, the Jews. And then note here, in these first few words, we encounter this word again, elect. Elect, chosen of God. It's the same word that we found that was prominent back in the book of Ephesians. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. We found when we studied this word elect there in the book of Ephesians that this whole concept of election, of being chosen of God, is a source of some strong disagreement and opposition within the body of Christ. And though we studied the concept carefully then, I want us to take just a few moments and revisit it because there's a great deal of difference between our understanding of how we got to where we are saved then takes place in the hearts and minds of these dear ones who are going to the churches in back of us here, the Baptists and the Methodist churches. We're all saved, but we have this understanding of how we got there that differs greatly between us. And it can cause us to not get along with one another. That's been taking place for generations. I'd like for us to spend just a few moments going back and revisiting this. And I'd like to quote by the way, a definition of what this word elect means. I'd like to quote the words of gotquestions.org. And I would suggest that you, for questions that you have about Scripture, that's a good source to go to, gotquestions.org. The writers uh, on that website are primarily Arminian, primarily Baptist, but are very fair with the Scriptures. And I respect them and greatly. Those writers say of this word elect, and I quote this, simply put, the elect of God are those whom God has predestined to salvation. They are called the elect because that word denotes the concept of choosing. Just as every four years in the U.S. we elect a president, we choose who will serve in that office. The same goes for God and those who will be saved. The writer says, God chooses those who will be saved. These are the elect of God. As it stands, listen, as it stands, the concept of God electing or choosing those who will be saved is not controversial. In other words, we don't disagree with our brethren in the Baptists and the Methodists and the Pentecostal churches that God actually chooses or elects us to salvation. What is controversial, the writer says, is how and in what manner God chooses those who will be saved. He goes on to say, throughout church history, there have been two main views on the doctrine of election or predestination. One view is the Arminian view, which we will call the prescient or foreknowledge view. And it teaches that God, through his omniscience, through his all-knowingness, knows those who will in the course of time choose of their own free will to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And on the basis of this divine knowledge, God elects those individuals before the foundations of the world. 
This view is held by the majority of American evangelicals. Again, Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals. Let me restate what he just said here. God chooses those to be saved after he has looked ahead and seen that they are going to receive him at some point in their life. Then he chooses to elect them and to predestinate them for salvation. That's the Arminian view. The second view, which is the Augustinian or Calvinist view, which essentially teaches that God not only divinely elects those who will have faith in Jesus Christ, and this is the difference, but also divinely elects to grant those individuals the necessary faith to believe in Christ. In other words, it's not of their own behavior, their own decision, but God actually grants them the faith to believe in Christ. God's election unto salvation is not based on a foreknowledge of that person's faith, but is based on the free sovereign grace of Almighty God. God elects people to salvation, and in time these people will come to faith in Christ because God has elected them. Those may sound like very similar doctrines, but they are worlds apart. And the writer concludes what the difference really is. He says the basic difference between these two doctrines boils down to the question of who has and who makes the ultimate choice of salvation. Is it God or is it man? Both of those doctrines agree that God chooses and predestinates and elects, but it's how that takes place that causes the disagreement. Now I must tell you that for me, this matter of being chosen by God still remains one of the most profound and unfathomable mysteries of the gospel. That God can be the first cause, and He always is. He is the first cause of all that takes place on the earth, but yet also He can allow mankind to make free will choices, seemingly almost simultaneously. But listen, folks, those two concepts, coordination of God and the free will of man, though they be a paradox of truth, They truly are a paradox, but yet they are both absolutely and without question true. And because both of those doctrines are true, I for myself, and I would encourage you to believe both. Both of those are true. And I don't want to allow myself to question or to deny either one of those doctrines. They are in the Scripture. Foreordination of God and the free will of man. And so what is my response to it? I must allow it to simply remain a mystery and accept by faith that it's true. Now let me move on quickly here. I'm running out of time. Verse 2 tells us what the source and all the elements of this irreconcilable mystery of bringing us to salvation is. Verse 2 tells us that it's the Trinity. And within these few words here, for those who do not believe in the Trinity or would have questions about the Trinity, here are all three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all taking their part within the salvation of man. And it's very clear here. Yes, the Lord God, as Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 tells us, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yes, He is one. He is one person, but in three individual persons, having three individual functions. One writer says... The Trinity functions in this way, that all things are from the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. 
And so we read here in verse 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. God has ordained that it takes all three in the Trinity to accomplish our salvation. And He also adds in there the free will of man. He first gives us the foreknowledge of God the Father. It was through the foreknowledge of God the Father. And foreknowledge does not mean just simply God knew because the word foreknowledge also has within it this meaning of deep divine love that is never passive. It's a knowledge that He reaches on forward and does something with and that's what He does as He chooses us unto salvation. The next words here, He talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He does His part and that is His specific function. He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's found in John 16, 8. And so He convicts us of this need of a Savior. And then all, while all of those other things are taking place with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, the third member of the Trinity, is washing each of us and our souls clean from sin by the sprinkling of His blood. It takes all three, and it is ordained of God that it would take all three within the Trinity to save us. But then, let me quickly add, there's also this one more element of our salvation, the free will of man. And it must take place. And yes, salvation can only take place because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross with no other works from us to be added to it. But part of this mystery of the gospel is that for our salvation to be ours personally, we must personally receive it into our souls. We must personally reach for it and receive it into our souls, not as a matter of works, but as a matter of surrender. It's a mystery, but it requires all three in the Trinity, plus it requires you and me to actually receive Christ into our souls. May I close and I will continue with these words next week as we continue to study First Peter. Let's pray.